If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know that our Serve the World Advent Giving partner is the Caring Network. And you may not know, um, I became a mom for the first time seven months ago. And so when I was, thank you, (laughs) when I was early pregnant, I had the opportunity to be an ultrasound volunteer at the Caring Network. And so their ultrasound techs need to be trained and need women to practice on. So when clients come in, they know what they're doing. And so I got to volunteer my belly for a a little hour so they could find find her in there and take some pictures. So I got some extra pictures, but I also loved getting to know the women that worked there. Hearing their hearts, they were filled with warmth and care and compassion and genuine love for the Lord. And just hearing their stories and what led them to this ministry in this season of their lives was a gift to me. And so it was a really cool experience to be able to serve in that way and with that organization. And so One of the things I love about the Caring Network is that they are for women, and they want to meet women where they're at. So whether that's they just found out that they're pregnant or whether they've already had an abortion, they want to meet them where they're at and provide holistic care and hope and help through counseling and a variety of different services that you'll hear about in this video, but to meet them and show them hope and the love of God. And so let's Turn our eyes to this video and hear a little bit more about the Caring Network. I think when it comes to pro-life issues, it can feel like it's hard to make an individual difference. Caring Network was started in 1981 by a group of people who came together who really believed in the pro-life cause and wanted to support women who were facing unplanned pregnancies. A lot of times women are looking at abortion not because they want to, but because they feel that that's the only option that they have. In a world where abortion is easily promoted and seen quite a bit out in our culture, Um, People aren't always aware that there's an alternative, a place that you can go to where you can receive uh, information, education, and support all in one location. We meet up women with uh, love, compassion, bringing hope um, and support to a woman who is in despair and who's frightened. So how can we help remove some of the obstacles that they're facing, encourage them and come alongside them in choosing life? Caring Network is the first step in helping women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. If women come to Caring Network first, three out of four choose life. If women go to Planned Parenthood first, eight out of a hundred choose life. We want to help women, encourage them towards choosing life um, by removing obstacles. Not only are we able to provide those services, but we're able to meet women with um, additional resources and support to help set her up for long-term success. Free pregnancy tests. We have confidential consultations and counseling for women. Ultrasounds. Um, The ultrasound actually is a window to the womb. It is a wonderful tool that enables um, the the woman to actually see uh, the child, hear the heartbeat. A lot of times that helps break down some of the barriers or walls that she may have. Um, Maybe she's been in denial up to this point and really helps build that connection between the mom and her child. We love to see women's lives changed. 
um, and babies saved. And uh, women are really impacted when they come through the doors of Caring Network. We have a exhaustive database of referrals out in the community. We can connect her with places that will help with things such as housing, material items, parenting classes, prenatal care, those kinds of things. We can just help get her those referrals that will help her long-term. I believe that God cares about the weakest, those who are not cared for and valued by a culture. We need to love our neighbor. We need to care for the least. God calls us to care for those who in a society, the society does not value as highly as others. And so I feel passionately that God calls us to this work. Our faith is really the backbone of the services that we provide at Caring Network. It is the motivation for why we do what we do, and it really impacts the way that we serve our clients. We have opportunities also to be able to share the gospel and be able to not only talk about life in regards to educating them about the life that's growing inside of them, but also about eternal life. Thousands and thousands of women and their families have been impacted by the work of Caring Network. The job will be done when abortion is no longer happening in our culture. For this to happen, God has to change hearts. But we believe that God can do that. We believe that God can bring about this sort of massive change. I'm just passionate about seeing Christians and churches being disciples, following Jesus, and, and making a difference for life. Well, as you saw last week, if you were here, uh, we showed you the story of Carrie uh, and her son Caden and their journey, and I'm going to give you a little glimpse of what Carrie Network is, uh, because if you're new with us, we choose a partner, we call it a Serve the World Partner, every Advent season, to tell you their story, to ask you to pray for them, and to contribute financially to help them expand their ministry capacities. That's what we're doing this Advent season with Carrie Network. I love what the woman said, we want to see women's lives changed and babies saved. And I know that this issue, the pro-life issue, is hotly debated in our culture today. We're not ignorant of the, about that fact. But as followers of Jesus, this is not a political thing to us. We worship a God who is the author of life, all life, from conception, from womb, all the way to the grave. And we should advocate for, care for all of the lives, the women's lives and the babies' lives as well. And Carrie Network does that so well. So our goal is to raise $250,000, of course, across all of the Advent from now until the end of the year. We're already over $75,000 toward that goal. So thank you to those of you who have already given. And I want to encourage you. Many of you are already generous to the mission of Chapel Street Church, and we're so grateful for that. Would you pray about what above and beyond you might give to make this goal a reality? They're going to open two new centers if we can meet this goal in our region to do this much, much needed work. And so, again, thank you for your generosity. You can simply write Caring Network or Serve the World in the notation of your check or if you give online. And all of the money raised toward Serve the World for this whole Advent season will go to support the ministry of Caring Network. And we, we're grateful for you and, and for that as well. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for the way that you pour out your grace in our lives. Thank you that you are the author of life, including our lives. You've given us the gift of life. And that you came into this world through a womb. You know what it is to be born into this world. Thank you for ministries like Carry Network and the remarkable work that they do to come alongside women and meet them in the most vulnerable and fearful time. Share the hope of the gospel with them and equip them to choose life. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given us life, not just physical life, but spiritual life in your name. We worship you, and we give you all the praise. Amen.
Joy to the world. Let me ask you a question. What, what is the Christmas spirit? Do you hear that phrase? We use the phrase a lot, don't we, this time of year? Are you in the Christmas spirit? Are you, do you have the Christmas spirit? People say things like, are you ready for Christmas? Which, if you're a parent of young children, uses causes, it causes great anxiety, right? Because no, nowhere close, I'm not ready, right? What's the Christmas spirit? Is it, does it happen like when these come out? Sometime in early September, right? <laughs> This is the Christmas spirit. I mean, I like Starbucks, but uh, I don't think that's it, right? What, what's the Christmas spirit? Hallmark movies, songs that you sing. We just put our tree up yesterday, so we're a little late to the game. And, when the, and we, you get, give us, you know, it's a real tree. It's a Fraser fir, just so you know. Anyway, it's not the fake ones. That's, that doesn't count. But we put our tree up, and the tree's up, and the stockings are hung, and the lights are on. Then it feels like, okay, now it's Christmas. Now we're in the Christmas spirit. What is it for you? What is the Christmas spirit? Feelings, nostalgia, certain smells, certain songs, certain sights. Maybe, maybe it's Christmas morning when all the anticipation comes together and the kids are excited if you have young ones. Maybe you think of Christmas spirit or Christmas joy like this. Yes, well, <laughs> I, I don't know that little girl, but she's got issues with unicorns, apparently. <laughs> yeah, maybe you think of that, that's the Christmas joy, right? My kids are grown now. I miss those days. I remember when my oldest Noah was 25, and he was in the Buzz Lightyear and Woody phase, and like you could get him that excited. Now it's just gift cards and cash and sleeping in. It's not quite the same, you know? I don't know what it's like for you. What's the Christmas spirit about for you? But w- whatever it is, Despite all the excitement and the nostalgia and the sentimentality of this season culturally, there's a very big difference between our cultural celebration of Christmas, which I love, and what Christians call Advent, the preparation of our hearts for the coming of the King. It's a different thing. That kind of joy, it doesn't come and go with the season. It's deeper. It's stronger. And even speaking of the Christmas season, there's a sad irony. There's a gap between what we talk about, the Christmas spirit, and what people actually experience. Every study of mental and emotional health tells you that during this season, levels of anxiety, depression, suicide rates all go up. The huge gap between it's the most wonderful time of the year and how many, many people, even here, experience it. Well, what does it mean for us as, as followers of Jesus? To experience joy. 
It's our series uh, called Carols of the King, our Advent series. We're looking at some of the great songs that Christians have sung throughout history during the Advent season. Maybe sometimes, as Anton mentioned, you sing the song without really thinking about what it says and what it means. It's a way of, of digging into what this, this season really means for us. The song we're looking at today is called, you can guess, we already sang it, Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Advent, we talk about, it comes from the Latin word adventus, meaning arrival or the coming of Jesus. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we began this series with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that we live between the Advents. Remember this? The first Advent, the first arrival, was Jesus coming into the world as a baby in a manger. Humility, weakness, vulnerability. And there's a second coming, a second arrival, a second Advent, when he will return in power and in glory. And we live in between. We look backward in gratitude and awe and wonder, and we look forward in hope and expectation. And we live in the in-between. And the hymn, Joy to the World, is written by a man named Isaac Watts in 1719. He wrote many of the songs that you sing and are familiar with if you grew up in church, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and songs like that. He was a great poet, spiritual poet, uh, but he didn't write Joy to the World to be a Christmas or Advent song at all. Uh, it's a song about the second coming, but really it wasn't even written as a song. It's a poem repackaging or reinterpreting Psalm 98, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Watts grew up in an era when he thought church music was boring. Anybody relate to that? Hopefully not today, right? <laughs> and if you come to the Christmas concert this afternoon or this evening, it won't be boring. I guarantee you that. It's beautiful and powerful. But maybe you grew up in a church where like, oh, this song goes on forever, you ever see that Mr. Bean uh, video where he's in church, he's falling asleep? Uh, not, you should go YouTube that later, right? Maybe you grew up in an era when church music was, just wasn't very engaging. Uh, that was Watts. In fact, he wrote this once. He said, I, when I see the dull indifference and the ne negligent and thoughtless air upon the faces of the solemn assembly, when the psalm of praise is upon their lips, one might even, it might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward devotion. Now he's a Puritan, he writes a lot of me-thinks and that sort of thing. Here's what he's saying. When I look at their faces, I don't think they believe what they're singing. That's what he's saying. It, like, look, sometimes you feel that way. Joy to the world. <sighs> the bears are on, right? Like, what do we... <laughs> or, so I watch some of you sometimes. You feel, you, you're caught up in the spirit. You want to raise your hands in worship and you do this. Hallelujah. Right? I don't want to get carried away here. But sometimes do, do we look like we mean what we're singing? That's what he's saying. These songs, these people, I don't think that they mean what they're singing. And his father, Watts' father said, well, if you don't like the music, maybe you should write different music. And he did. He spent his life writing poems, got put to music that we still sing today. To glorify the majesty of Jesus Christ and to give God's people hope in who he is, to remind them. Joy to the world is, I think, one of his very best. So let's look at verse 1. Joy to the world the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Let heaven and nature sing. Let heaven and heaven. <laughs> you can't stop there, the whole thing. And nature sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. What is joy? What does that mean? It's got to be more than opening a unicorn on Christmas morning. What's joy? It's not the circumstantial happiness that, or feelings that come and go with a season. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. 
Uh, it's an imaginary conversation. You, when you read the book, you only read Lewis's side of the conversation with a man, a friend, an imaginary friend named Malcolm. Some people thought it was Malcolm Muggeridge. It's not. He just invented this conversation. So you're reading his questions and answers to their conversation about the mysteries and wonder of praying to God. And he's got a line in a long uh, discourse about happiness and joy, and he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. What a great line. Joy is, to, is what we're meant to be marked by if we belong to Jesus. Joy should be one of the characteristics of God's people in the world. Okay, so let's ask the question, is it? What do you think? Are Christians in our culture today known for joy? Is that the reputation of most Jesus followers today? Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't agree with everything, but they are so joyful. No, you probably wonder, do I have to answer this out loud? No, the answer is no. We're not, we're not largely known for our joy. But we should be. And maybe this song has something to teach us. The Word of God certainly does. Luke chapter 2, verse 10, we're told the announcement, the angel announces to the shepherds, right? Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. The gospel, the good news, is one that's meant to bring joy to the world. Joy to the world. Joy to the world, okay? Let's ask a couple of questions about this simple statement, the title of a song. Joy to the world. First question, why? Why should we be joyful? What reason do we really have to be joyful? I mean, you turn on cable news, you look on social media, you talk to your wacky family members, and there's a lot of bad news in the world. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of tension. People are, are, there's a lot of, there's a great, serious lack of joy in our culture today. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty. Why should we be joyful? Well, this, the song tells us, because the Lord is come. Because the Lord is come. That sounds like bad grammar today, but Isaac Watts wrote this over 300 years ago. He's saying the Lord has come and will come. He has come. That's why. That's the fundamental reason for your joy. Notice the song doesn't say, and this is theologically profound, joy in the world. It says joy to the world. Joy is in Jesus, and he brings joy to the world. You won't find your true joy in the world. You can find circumstantial happiness. You can find moments of wonder and awe and so on, but you won't find true lasting joy in the world. You find it in Jesus, and he brings it to the world. That's the message. Let's look at Psalm 98, verses 1 through 6, because we live in a world that's in desperate need of joy. This is the psalm that Isaac Watts repurposed and, and, and drew inspiration for the, the hymn we just sang. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Let's pause there for a minute. He has have worked salvation, has made known his salvation, and revealed his righteousness. These are all saying the same thing here. Sing to the Lord a new song, a song of joy. Why? Because the Lord has made known his salvation in all the earth. You see where Watts gets his inspiration for the language here. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, For the grace of God has, been, has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. 
In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel being revealed to the nations. The mystery of the good news of Jesus Christ is being revealed, made known. When you see phrases like his right hand or the right, the, the, the right arm of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's a reference to God's power and authority to accomplish something. It's saying God has achieved salvation for his people. How? By revealing his righteousness. How? In his son, Jesus Christ. Joy to the world. He's, he's done it. Anton used a little phrase a moment ago in worship. He says, he's made a way. That's the way that he's made. He's accomplished something on our behalf. He brings joy to the world. God has revealed his righteousness. And if you're new to church, the word righteousness might strike you as odd. What's that word mean? It means right standing, right relationship. How does a man or a woman become right with the God who made them? Through Jesus, who's come into the world, the reason for our joy. Let's continue on in the psalm. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king. The Lord. You see where joy to the world, the hymn, is all, this is coming right out of this amazing psalm. And if we continue on, the last couple of verses, verses 7 through 9, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the world and all those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now maybe you hear these words like judge, judge, right? And you think uh, judgment and the judge, I don't know if that connects to joy in my mind. I think of judgment as punishment. How does judgment and joy go together? But if we understand what's happening here, joy is the proper response to the judge of the earth, to the king, if we understand him. He comes, the reason for the joy is that he comes to do what? To make known his salvation and to judge the earth with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why? Notice what he says. All creation. Seas are singing. Rivers are clapping their hands. Hills are singing. Rocks and trees. Everybody's singing. All creation. This is the Psalm 19, David's great psalm. All, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they're declaring his praises. There's no, there's no language in all the earth where their voice is not heard. And you experience that even if you don't know that psalm. You see a sunrise or a sunset or your child go crazy on a Christmas morning or just little moments of life, take your breath away. And for just a second, you're caught up with true joy. It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's amazing. They're fleeting, but we get them. I see the Instagram posts, right? Hashtag blessed sunrise, Midwest sunrise. You're driving down Kesslinger Road facing west and you see just the, the sky is lit up. It's too early, it's 4.45 for the sun to set, but still, it's setting and it's beautiful, right? You think it's glorious. And then you put your head back down and you go about your life full of you know, worry and hustle and stress. And... But there are these moments where we tune into the song of creation. That's what the psalmist is saying. All the time, creation, all of creation, is declaring God's praise. It's clapping its hands and singing with joy. We're just not listening. We're just not tuned in most of the time. Because he comes to judge. Why is creation singing? Because they know things are not right, but one day the one who will set them right will come. 
Joy is the proper response to a truly righteous judge and king. You know, we watch the news and you see these verdicts coming out on cases that are pending, uh, cases, trials that we're waiting to see the verdict of. And I won't name them, it'll stress people out, but you know what I'm talking about. And they make big news. And every time there's a verdict handed down by the judge or by a jury, whatever the case is, people are either celebrating or they're protesting. Some of us, yes, this is totally unjust, right? And we don't agree. In the next case, the same thing, right? And people, what is going on there? No human court or judge can ever bring perfect justice. It can't happen because courts are made of people and people are not perfect. So we, at best, we get imperfect judgments. At worst, we get totally unjust judgments. And that's why we have this division. But the psalm and the song are talking about a time when the one who can judge rightly will come. When nobody will say, that's not fair. That's not right. All will go, yes, that is right. That is right. That is true. That is righteous and good. The judge of the earth. It's a reason for joy. It should be. Because the Savior reigns. Why? Why joy? The Lord has come. Why joy? The Savior reigns, we're told. Because our Savior reigns. Look at verse 2. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, do you hear the, hear the Psalm 98 there? Repeat the sounding joy. It's sounding all the time, and we're being called to join in. I like that phrase, let men and women their songs employ. Do you know that you have a song to employ? Do you think that you have a song? I cannot sing. Anybody who's sat near me in worship services will attest to this. My wife will sometimes, when we're singing together in worship, she will sing where I'm supposed to sing. And I'll listen, I'll try to do that. And as soon as she stops, I, I, I'm lost again. I cannot sing. But it doesn't mean that I don't have a song to sing with my life. Your life is meant to be lived as a song of praise to God. The trees are doing it. The rivers are doing it. The hills are doing it. The sun is doing it. The skies are doing it. The difference between us and the rest of creation is that God has given us a choice in the matter. And we just aren't doing it most of the time. Elizabeth Elliot in a book called These Strange Ashes says, a clam glorifies God better than you. Because the clam is living according to creator's purpose. We are meant to be in relationship with our creator and to live our lives in service and to glorify him. That's the song we employ. Or we're meant to anyway. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Join with creation with your life. Singing with joy because someone powerful, beautiful, someone loving and wise and faithful is now in charge. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait, wait a second. If we live between the advents, the first advent and the second, and if when he comes, he'll, be, he'll rule and he'll reign and he'll be in charge, who's in charge now? Who's reigning now? Who's calling the shots now? Is God not in charge now? And if he is in charge now, I don't want to say it out loud in church, but is he doing a good job? There's a lot of awful stuff happening in the world. I mean, what is God doing if he's reigning now? Because it doesn't feel like he's reigning now. And I feel that. I know you feel that. What do we make of that? Because sometimes it does not appear that earth has received her king. The message of the Bible is that Jesus is indeed king and he does reign. But we, all of us, have rebelled against our king, have rejected our king, resist him, 
And there are consequences to this. The Bible calls this sin. And he will come finally to set all those things right. But we're living in this in-between time. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13 puts it this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a symbol of his reign and his rule. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He has offered a sacrifice for sin. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he is reigning. But there's this waiting period that we're in. It's what theologians call the already but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. He's already accomplished it, but it's not yet fully here. He's already defeated sin on the cross, but it's not yet fully realized. That's why we get glimpses of joy, but we also get lots of glimpses of pain and suffering and sorrow. The world is still in rebellion against her king, but the king's not done yet. Look at verse 3. This is my favorite verse of the hymn, but it's the one that's not based at all on Psalm 98. It is based on Scripture, but it's not, you don't find it in Psalm 98. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What is this talk about? sorrow and sin and thorns and curses and blessings. What, what's he talking about? What's the, what's the curse about? This is, uh, the curse is the consequences of our rebellion against the king who made us and who's, who, his rightful reign. It's really Genesis chapter 3 language. Some of you know the Bible story, but in Genesis 3, we get what we call the curse. Now, it's not like a Harry Potter curse, like he's God's pronouncing a curse or a spell. It's talking about the results of our rebellion. Here's a portion of that from verses 17 and 19 of Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now again, God's not saying, I'm going to make up some bad things because you are naughty children. I'm going to curse you with some curse. He's saying this is the inevitable consequences of what's going to happen in your life and in the world because you have rejected me. Like if you, if you want to go to Miami Beach for a, for a Christmas break, and you get around your car and you go around the lake and you head east, you're going to end up in Cleveland, and you're going to be disappointed because it's not at all like Miami Beach in late, in late December. You're going to be like, how did I get here? I didn't want to be here. This is not what I envisioned. Well, it's because that's the choice you made. That's the direction you headed. And it's an imperfect analogy, but God is saying in Genesis 3 here, you have made a choice. Your life is headed in a direction, and there are inevitable consequences to that. All I'm doing is telling you about them. The Bible calls it sin. Sin is not a word we, you know, it's very popular. We don't use it like sin, the fruits of evil, right? It sounds very churchy and fast. That's not what, he's just saying like, this is what happens. If it's true that the, the, the king created the world and made you in his image and you belong to him and he has a rightful reign and you say, thanks but no thanks, I think I can make sense of life on my own, I want to go my own way, there's going to be fallout. The scripture is simply laying that out for us in your life, in your relationships, in this world, each of us has gone astray. And we see it and we feel it around us every day. 
So the song is saying, no more let sin and sorrow grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to reverse the curse, to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. How far is that? Every inch of this world, every nook and cranny of your life, if you receive him. God made all that is, including you, and we are the crown of his creation. He made us in his image to be in relationship with him. But we have rejected that. And that, the results of that, touch every aspect of our existence. Nobody is exempt. But the song is speaking of a day when it won't be. I love the phrase in the hymn, no more. No more let sin or sorrow grow. Just think about those two words from it with me. No more. No more babies' lives destroyed in the womb. No more women abused in the home. No more people in poverty exploited. No more racism and racial tensions and divisions. No more divorce. No more broken marriages. No more children abused or abandoned. No more children dying of hunger or starvation. No more. No more disease, no more pandemic, no more cancer, no more diseases people can't diagnose, no more dementia, no more watching those you love dwindle away to nothing. No more. Think about it. Doesn't, doesn't your heart long for no more? Isn't there a no more cry in your heart somewhere? Maybe right now, something you're experiencing. No more of this. It's wrong. It shouldn't be. We sing the song, we don't even think like, no more let sin or sorrow grow, or thorns infest the ground. No more strife and difficulty and, and relational brokenness. No more hatred and anger about people that ought to be loving each other. No more. That's the cry of Advent. It isn't sweet baby Jesus in the manger and sentimentalized and sanitized. That's the cry of, the, that's the Christian cry of Advent. The king will come and there'll be no more. Psalm 98 verse 9 tells us he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. He'll do it right once and for all, which we cannot get right, no matter how hard we try with all of our technology and human wisdom. We fall short over and over again. The coming day of the king's return and judgment will be a great joy to the rocks, to the hills, to the rivers, to the seas, to all creation, and to every man, woman, and child who belongs to him. Joy to the world. One more question. How? How? How are we supposed to respond to this? What do you do? You just walk out going, yeah, I wish that was true. How, how should you and I respond to the message of joy to the world? The song tells us right in the very first verse. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth Receive her king. Let every heart, you know, prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Your response is to receive him as king by preparing him room. That's mine and that's yours. That's our job. You know the Christmas story, right? There was no room for them in the inn. We, we say it every Christmas. You know, they, Mary and Joseph, they're, they're going. Don't you feel bad for Joseph? Like, you should have called ahead, man. Like, you really blew it. I saw this meme on, online the other day. You have to read this carefully now. How Silent Night Began. 
<laughs> Mary, talk to me, Mary. She's like, I'm fine. What's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> All kidding aside, though, it's like, no room. No room? No room for the king? That's how he came into the world, in obscurity, off to the side. Let every heart this time prepare him room. Make room for him. The king of kings comes to make his blessings flow into your life. His mercy, his grace, his peace, his forgiveness, his love into you and through you. How do you make room for that? John chapter 1 verse 11 and 12 tells us this. He came to his own, his Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Sons and daughters of the king. Here's a question. How much room do you have to make for the king of kings in your life? Like, what, what, what is it like, prepare the guest room? Here, Jesus, you can, we have this nice pull-out couch for you in the den, which nobody sleeps on. Here's some extra, here's the kid sheets. Here's a couple hand towels. Like, what do you, how do you make room for Jesus in your life? Do you, do you carve out a little space in your already busy life? I've told this story many times, but I, I used to coach flag football, and one of the guys I was coaching with with my son found out I was a pastor and said, oh, I should come to your church. I could use a little Jesus in my life. I said, well, he wants to be in your life, but he's not little. There's no such thing as a little Jesus in your life. Think about how ridiculous that sounds. I've got my little Jesus. I'm going to put him in here until I need him. When I'm in trouble or I'm stressed out, oh, little Jesus, could you help me, little Jesus? You know, I'm like, oh, sorry. I'm busy now, little Jesus. Stay there. That's not how it works. You don't, you don't prepare him room by like saying, Jesus, be my life coach, my therapist, my little friend. You fall on your knees and you surrender to the king. That's how you prepare him room. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this in his classic work, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being built into, made a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace he intends to come and dwell in it himself. The Bible tells us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are the dwelling place in which God comes and lives by his Spirit. When you receive him by faith, when you repent of your sin, your waywardness, your rebellion, and you fall on your knees and acknowledge he is king and you're not, then he comes into your life to invade, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where in your life do you not need him? It means all of you, to prepare him room is to say, here's the keys to every room, to every closet. You can have it all. And some of you have been in church a long time. You intellectually believe. You say the right things. You know the songs. But you're still holding a few of the keys back, right? Not this closet, Jesus. That's where I keep my junk, thank you. That's exactly where he wants to go. And others of you have never let him in at all. Our response to the message of joy to the world is simple. Surrender, fall on your knees, open your heart, and receive. Let earth and everyone in it receive her king. This is, brings the last verse 
Verse 4, he rules the world. That means you and me. With truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove, meaning they, they acknowledge the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The Bible tells us that someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Some will do it willingly in worship. Others, because they finally have to face it. But all will acknowledge. He makes the nations prove. Eventually, all will see who he is as king. Prepare him room and now. Let him reign now. I've been thinking about that last line. The wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. Do you ever wonder at the love of God? Sometimes I'm so in my head, academically, theologically, and think about leadership and stuff, I, I, don't, I, I just need to pull back from that and just pause and marvel and wonder at how good and loving God is. The love of God is not an academic exercise. It's not something that you just you know, write down on a piece of paper or, or print on your, or post on, on, on Instagram. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you have any idea how much the king of heaven loves you? I'm a pastor. I've given my life to this. I think I only know a fraction, just the tiniest bit of how loving he is. He loves you. Joy to the world. That Lord, that king has come. Not a judge to condemn and to hold you down and to make everyone feel guilty. But who gave his life. Who came in humility and weakness and vulnerability and will come again in power and glory. Receive him. Prepare room for him. That's your Advent job, friends, for all of us. Let's pray. Jesus, you know every heart in this room, those present here in person, those watching online. You know every face, you know every fear, you know every anxiety, you know every hope and every dream. You, you made us in your image. You knit us together in our mother's womb. You saw our unformed bodies in our frame before one of our days came to be. You know our identity better than we know it. And you love us. Forgive us for running from that, doubting it, resisting it. We're bombarded all the time, Jesus, with a thousand reasons to think that, that you're not king, you're not real. In this moment, we fall on our knees once again and acknowledge. We receive you as king. Some of us, we're doing it again because we forget. Perhaps some for the first time. We prepare room for you, Jesus, which means we surrender because we want your blessings of mercy and grace and forgiveness and freedom to flow all over our lives, this church, this community, and this world. We praise you, Jesus, our King. Amen.